Hello friends, welcome to Finding Ohm, a podcast about mental health and how it relates to spirituality and science. This podcast is designed for those of us looking for the answers to questions about how we can incorporate spiritual and scientific concepts into our daily lives with the goal of improving our mental health and that of others. I'm your host, Dr. Prashant Sharma. I'm a psychiatrist and I'm delighted to bring you this show. Now, today's episode is a little bit different from the norm, but since this topic has been on all of our minds and pertains to the current state of the world, I felt a need to discuss it. We'll be taking a psychologically-minded look at the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. A lot of this will be about Vladimir Putin, as he is looked at as an enigma by a lot of people, so it might be helpful to better understand his intentions. First, I think we have to talk about how Vladimir Putin got into power, and this story in itself might give us an idea about how he thinks and acts. I also want to make sure to give credit to the podcast This American Life, because I learned about this story from them. Their analysis is very in-depth, and I'm only going to do a quick summary here, but if you want to check it out more in-depth, listen to their recent episode on the conflict. So let's go back to 1999 in Russia. At the time, Vladimir Putin was the prime minister, but he was not well known at all. He was actually seen as somewhat timid by world leaders and organizations. The president was Boris Yeltsin. Keep in mind, Vladimir Putin was formerly part of the KGB, the intelligence organization of the Soviet Union, which later turned into the FSB after the fall of the Soviet Union. So he's always been analytical and calculated given this training and experience. Now, at the time, there were numerous corruption investigations going on into then-President Boris Yeltsin. And for context, this is three years after the First Chechen War. Now, in that war, Russia was unable to conquer Chechnya due to multiple factors, including demoralization among the troops and lack of public support for the conflict. And eventually, they signed a peace treaty. Essentially, Chechnya won because they effectively repelled the Russian military. Now, coming back to 1999... Then began a series of bombings in Russia, targeting apartment complexes in different cities, and state news began to report that Chechen rebels were behind the bombings. This was puzzling since the widespread belief was that Chechnya had no reason to do these types of attacks since they had a peace treaty and no Russian troops were in Chechnya. Nevertheless, hundreds of innocent Russians died in these bombings. There is understandably a lot of fear and panic at the time among the people, Interestingly, there was a fifth bomb that did not explode. In this incident, Russian citizens living in an apartment building witnessed a sedan pulling up to the building. Two men and women left the sedan and entered the building with sacks in their hands, and they subsequently left in their car. The citizens called the police because it was suspicious behavior. Law enforcement came to investigate. They found explosives, and there was an evacuation of the building. At this point, there's a massive search for the sedan and these individuals going on. In the meantime, the sacks were sent to the lab and the material was identified as hexogen, which is also known as RDX, a military-grade explosive. At the time, hexogen was only available at Russian military bases and FSB compounds. Remember, FSB is Russia's intelligence agency. Now, the individuals who planted the bomb were eventually found, as well as the car. Turns out they weren't Chechens at all, but they were Russians and actually FSB agents. This is all verified information, by the way. I know it might sound like a conspiracy theory, but this is all very much established. So apparently, the FSB commander then held a press conference after this news got out, and he said that the FSB agents were conducting an exercise, and that there was nothing in the sacks except sugar. 
Interesting, since the lab had already identified the sacks as being hexogen. But anyway, he leaves the press conference taking no questions, and this matter is eventually forgotten because Putin used these attacks as rationale to attack Chechnya. The country was at a state of war, so this incident was brushed aside, and thus began the Second Chechen War. Now at this point, Boris Yeltsin steps down, appointing Putin as acting president. Putin goes on to hold elections early, not allowing his opposition to prepare fully, and he wins the election. He then halts all corruption investigations into Boris Yeltsin, shuts them down completely. So this is the path that Putin had to power. Now, I do want to mention there is no signed order from Putin to execute this operation. Not that there would be in this situation anyway, but when something like this happens, we ask ourselves who stood to gain. First person who stood to gain was Boris Yeltsin, as the corruption investigations would eventually go away, and the second person is Vladimir Putin, as he would ascend to power in the midst of a war. Now, did one of them do it alone, or was it together? We don't know the answer to that, but we do know the government was involved in the attacks since the perpetrators were FSB agents. And they did plant RDX at the bottom of a civilian apartment building. Now, seeing as though Putin came to power in the midst of his own government killing his own people, this highlights what he is willing to do to ascend to and consolidate power. For Yeltsin, his participation was likely for self-preservation, I'm guessing he really wanted those corruption investigations to disappear. In terms of Putin, though, if he was involved in this, then it means killing hundreds of his own people didn't faze him, as long as it got him to reach his goal. A truly Machiavellian mindset, if I ever saw one. Now, let's take a 20,000-foot view of this, and uh, I do want to give credit to Vox for their video and research on this entire conflict and region. I'll include a link to this and the other sources in the description. So, Europe's map has largely been drawn according to political alliances, at least since World War II. And during World War II, the Soviet Union staged a brutal expansion of its borders, invading multiple countries, including Ukraine. But in 1949, the Western European countries, not all of them, but many of them, formed into NATO and pledged to defend each other if invaded by the Soviet threat. A few years after that, on the other side, the Soviet Union and countries like Hungary, Romania, Poland, and others formed the Warsaw Pact Alliance led by the Soviet Union. The rivalry was essentially the Cold War, that is, until the Soviet Union collapsed. Countries like Ukraine started declaring independence from the Soviets. USSR, as the Soviet Union was also called, dissolved into 15 different countries. This, of course, weakened Russia. Their sphere of influence and buffer between themselves and NATO disappeared in a way. But on the other side, NATO continued to expand. In 1999, Poland... Hungary and the Czech Republic joined NATO. That year sounds pretty familiar, right? It's the same exact year that the apartment bombings happened in Russia and the Second Chechen War started. In 2004, seven more countries joined NATO, and at that point the buffer between Russia and NATO completely disappeared since Estonia and Latvia were right on their border. Now, the countries that bordered Russia who weren't in NATO included Belarus, Ukraine, and Georgia. But Ukraine and Georgia had openly wanted to join NATO for a long time. They, of course, were in Russia's crosshairs because of this. Eventually, Ukraine had a chance to sign on to an EU trade pact in 2013. But at the time, Ukraine's government was pro-Russian, and instead, they strengthened ties with Russia politically. Protesters were in the streets in Ukraine, demanding for the EU trade pact to be signed. The Ukrainian president at the time cracked down on the protesters, killing more than 100 people. 
This sparked even more protests. Eventually, the president had to leave the country. So Putin lost influence over Ukraine because of these events. Since his political maneuvering didn't work, in 2014 he decided to use force, annexing the Crimean Peninsula in Ukraine. Since that time, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has resulted in the deaths of 14,000 people and the displacement of 2 million people. Putin's goal during the past eight years has been to continue to destabilize Ukraine by holding on to the separatist-controlled regions and keeping it from joining NATO. Now, last year, in December 2021, Putin made a list of demands to NATO. And this point is extremely important because I believe this was a part of his plan and greater intention to invade Ukraine no matter what. His demands included NATO withdrawing significantly back to the borders in 1997. Now, looking at a map that would involve rolling back NATO by 12 or 13 countries and Russia having an incredibly large buffer zone between them and NATO. Now, Putin knew these demands would not be met. He was asking for way too much, and it's something that would just simply never happen. And he did that because he knew what the answer would be, and he would proceed to invade Ukraine. He continued to amass troops at the border, and all the while telling the world nothing would happen, and of course, as you know, the invasion began. Now let's look a little bit internally at Putin's mindset from the perspective of an ex-KGB operative and, quote, Soviet patriot. He witnessed the collapse of the Soviet Union, the devaluation of the Russian ruble currency, rampant unemployment across the country after the fall, and a host of other negative impacts on the country. And the fall of the Soviet Union was, of course, a result of pressure from the West in various shapes and forms. So it would be hard for him not to have some type of animosity towards the West, NATO, and the United States who led the effort to dismantle the USSR. So he came into power with this mindset, with the goal of returning Russia to its glory and to repel NATO and the West at all costs. Now, you might be wondering, how is Putin able to do all of this with the Russian military machine? He's just one man, right? I mean, makes no sense. So this brings us to how his popularity is within Russia and how he has maintained a hold on the country. Now, there are various polls. Some are state-sponsored, others are independent, and we can look at that. But I think it might be more useful to take a look at one particular interview. This one was done by Charles Maines, NPR's Moscow correspondent. This is pertinent because Charles lived with a woman named Olga Sergeyevna Dmitrieva in the mid-1990s when he was an exchange student in Russia. They were really close, so close that he called her his Russian mom and she called him her American son. And he knew he could get an unfiltered opinion of Putin from her. Now, a few things to keep in mind about Olga Sergeyevna. She is an accountant in Russia, does not work for the Russian government, has a daughter who lives in London, and a son who works for an American tech company. Alright, so he went and talked to her in the neighborhood that they all lived in before, and she explained that things were very different during Boris Yeltsin's reign compared to Putin. During Yeltsin's time, people didn't have enough money, unemployment was rampant, grocery stores were empty. And Charles saw the changes as well. For instance, after Putin came to power, their neighborhood got a new playground, new stores, a new museum, a community pool, lots of new facilities and infrastructure to improve quality of life. This is part of the changes Putin brought to Russia mainly by leveraging the country's oil reserves, 
to the point that Russia became the second largest foreign supplier of oil to the United States. And yes, so the money spent by the U.S. in buying oil from Russia fueled Putin's revamp of Russia and indirectly his popularity. But the changes he brought about are a big reason for his popularity among Russians in their 40s, 50s, and up. He also has support because he is a former KGB agent, he's seen as disciplined and educated, he brought an end to the chaos from before. As Charles explains in the interview, during the Yeltsin years, the ruble collapsed several times, the government was constantly reshuffled, the oligarchs prospered as the working people went into poverty. Putin is seen by many within Russia as someone who saved the country. In Russia, he has an image of someone who is frugal, lives modestly, works all the time, and someone who can fix anything. This is in contrast to his image outside Russia, a guy who rides horses shirtless, flies jets, and shoots guns. But the fact remains, by improving people's daily lives in Russia, Putin gained massive ground on the popularity front, especially in contrast to the Yeltsin years. Now on the topic of image, this certainly seems like something that is important to Putin. The famous photos of him riding the horse shirtless, wrestling a bear, you know, all the memes, everything else. And why is this important? Well, it's important both inside the country and outside. I think a very key moment is this incident that happened way back in 2009. This was a televised appearance where Putin visited an area where workers were protesting because of unpaid salaries. He visited the factory and had a meeting with some prominent businessmen. During this meeting, he really humiliated this rich oligarch, asking him if he had signed a particular document. Interestingly, in the video, this guy responds to Putin and says he signed it. Then Putin looks down at the document, says, hey, I, I don't see your signature. He throws the pen on the table and tells the guy to come and sign it. So this oligarch walks to the front of the table, head down, picks up the pen, signs it, and walks away. And then Putin tells him, hey, give me my pen. You know, the whole event has a televised or theatrical flair to it, and I do think a big part of it was that. Putin flexing his muscles as the good guy in Russia who won't take nonsense from corrupt, rich oligarchs. So what do we take from all of this? Well, when it comes down to it, it all comes back to Putin who is driving the conflict. And what do we know about him from the information we talked about today? He's methodical, precise, thinks very long-term, and is certainly ruthless. Obviously, it's difficult to do a psychological analysis from afar, but I found a fascinating article by psychologists Drs. Immelman and Trenzaluk, who published an indirect assessment of Putin's personality using relevant data from open-source intelligence and used the Millen Inventory of Diagnostic Criteria. And they found the following. He is dominant in that he uses power to direct others and to evoke obedience and respect and has a lack of sentimentality. He is ambitious in that he is bold, competitive, self-assured, entitled, and expects others to recognize his qualities. They hypothesize that this is what makes Putin expansionist in his endeavors. He is high on conscientiousness, so is dutiful and diligent, has a strong work ethic and attention to detail, so people like this are good at crafting public policy, but they often lack the political skills to consummate their policy objectives. Hence, they're more technocratic than visionary. This may be why there are certain points where he fails, like the alliance with the pro-Russian Ukrainian administration. This next component in the inventory is called retiring, which they describe as Putin 
tending not to develop strong ties to others. He's deficient in the ability to recognize the needs and feelings of others and may lack spontaneity and interpersonal vitality. He is dauntless, individualistic, resistant to deterrence, and inclined to take calculated risks. They concluded the article by stating his strengths are his commanding demeanor and confident assertiveness, but his deficiencies are his uncompromising intransigence, which is refusal to change his views, lack of empathy and congeniality, and cognitive inflexibility. So I started this psychologically minded deep dive into the conflict to try to figure out how we could potentially predict what Russia and Putin would do. But it's difficult as expected. For instance, I thought Russia would exercise its air power extensively in Ukraine, but it actually has not, especially when compared to how they exercise it in Syria and all the hype built up around it. The reasoning for not exercising the air power is really unclear, although it may be related to them trying to avoid an air confrontation, especially if a no-fly zone is established. But if I had to guess at what might happen next, what we do know is that Putin is staunch and unrelenting, so he will likely continue his invasion and assault on Ukraine while using other measures to fight against the sanctions like withholding Russia's oil reserves strategically resulting in higher prices, maybe sidestepping the sanctions using crypto. But his main goal is to keep Ukraine destabilized. Of course, ideally in his mind, they want to topple the Ukrainian government and install a puppet regime in its place. But at that point, there would be a Ukrainian insurgency, which would likely be supplied by the Western powers, fighting against the Russian occupation, and that fight could go on for years. But even then, Putin would achieve his goal, which is to keep Ukraine in turmoil and keep it from joining NATO for as long as possible. Now, whether or not he'll be able to withstand this within Russia itself is unclear. At this point, there have been numerous anti-war protests in Russia, with police jailing over 6,000 citizens, and this is only the beginning. He's ordered state-run media to only refer to the conflict as a special military operation rather than an invasion or war, but the news is getting through to Russian citizens despite the country's censorship strategies. A long drawn-out war with Russian soldier casualties will certainly hurt his popularity, but would it be enough for a coup to happen within Russia? Unlikely, but certainly a possibility. Either that or Putin relents and withdraws from Ukraine. Currently from reports and photos of Putin, which are of course limited, he's seen communicating with his leadership by televideo. There's also a photo of him talking to his staff in person, but there's this long table where he's alone at one end and all of his advisors are crowded together on the other end. People are saying that he's worried about contracting COVID-19, and this is the reason he has all these precautions in place. In the end, taking this unilateral offensive against Ukraine probably makes him feel isolated, as his country is pretty divided from what we can see on this conflict, and so he'll likely be feeling more paranoia about what could possibly happen to him. Remember, he is calculated and thinks long-term, so he may be preparing for many possibilities. But my overall takeaway from his personality inventory that I mentioned before, which again, he did not take, this was done using publicly available intelligence, so it may not be accurate, but according to that, he has significant difficulties in changing his views, the cognitive inflexibilities, he has difficulties understanding how others are viewing his actions or feel about his actions, that's empathy, and he has a lack of congeniality, so on the world stage may have difficulty making allies at this point. Currently, it's only the pro-Russian government in Belarus helping Russia in this war. Despite all these possibilities and predictions, we'll have to wait and see what happens.
that's it for this episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was a little bit different from the usual content, but I felt like with such a large world-scale event happening that it was worthwhile to take a look at. As always, visit our website at findingohm.org if you have ideas on other topics or if you'd like to collaborate. Contact information is on the site. Our podcast is available on Google, Spotify, and Apple, so make sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. For now, have a wonderful rest of your week. Stay safe, and till next time, friends.